Today's scripture reading comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1, 2, and 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon. My name is Aaron. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic. And if you've just moved into the city recently in particular, and this is your first, second, or third time here, I want to especially welcome you to our church. Uh, I know how difficult and arduous it can be to find a church community to call home. And so if that's you, I want to especially uh, extend a warm greeting and uh, welcome to you. Uh, well, we are finishing up our series on the Ten Commandments uh, today. And as I was preparing this message, I thought to myself, what are some things that uh, I want everyone to take away with from this series? And there are two things that I thought of that I want everyone to take away with. And the first thing is this, that we are far worse than we think we are. That's the first thing. But the second thing that I want us to take away with is this, that we are far more loved than we think we are as well. We are far worse than we think we are, and we are far more loved than we think we are. A few years ago, there was an episode of Family Feud. And uh, if you've seen the show before, there are two families, and then the winning family gets to go on to the final speed round. And the winning family selects two members of their family as representatives to be asked five questions in this final speed round. And, uh, and so uh, one of the family members comes up, and Steve Harvey, the host, asks them five different questions. And the, one, of the, one of the five questions that he asks the family members is this, uh, how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this past month? And the first person goes, three. And so Steve Harvey says, well, we surveyed 100 people, and out of 100 people, 15 people admitted to breaking three out of the Ten Commandments. And so she finishes the rest of the questions, and then her other family member comes up, and Steve Harvey asks the same questions. How many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this past month? And the person goes, seven. And you should just see the look on Steve Harvey's eyes, because he stops the show and he goes, who have you been murdering? What, what have you stolen? How many lies have you been telling? And so he goes, well, we surveyed 100 people, and zero people admitted to breaking seven out of the Ten Commandments. And you know what the number one response was in this survey? For how many commandments have you broken this past month? The number one answer was one. Majority of people think that they have only broken one out of the Ten Commandments this past month. And if you've been with us the past nine weeks, my hope is that if Steve Harvey were to ask you the question, how many of the Ten Commandments have you broken this past month? My hope is that your response would not be one, three, or seven, but that your response would be ten. Because the Ten Commandments are far more nuanced than we think. Murdering isn't just killing someone, but it's murdering them in your heart with hatred. Adultery isn't just cheating, it's, it's also um, uh, more than that, it's looking at someone lustfully. Stealing isn't just taking things from other people, but it's your inability to be charitable and altruistic with your time and money. Lying isn't just fibbing, but it's also a failure to speak up for the truth. And so my hope is that as, you've, if, as we've been going through the Ten Commandments, that you would see that it is far more nuanced than we give it credit for. And therefore, 
we are actually far worse than we think we are. On the other hand, what I also want us to see is that we are far more loved than we think we are. And the reason why God gives us the Ten Commandments is not as an indictment so much as He gives it to us so that He can teach us how to live the good life, a life where we don't just survive, but where we thrive, which is why the Ten Commandments are called commandments and not just suggestions. And the way that God closes the Ten Commandments, the final word that He gives is do not covet, or to put it in another way, do not envy. Now, as a pastor, I've never experienced anyone coming up to me saying, Pastor, help, I have a serious problem with envy. And you know what? I have never approached anyone else and said, I have a problem with envy either. And yet, if you take a look at every known language in the world, there is a word for envy, which shows its ubiquitous nature. One psychologist says that envy is the inescapable dilemma that we must all struggle with, which means that it is pervasive amongst us all. And the thing about envy is this, unlike murdering, adultery, lying, stealing, it's very overt and very out there for everyone to see. But envy isn't so much outward so much as it is profoundly inward, which is why it eats away at us in a very quiet and yet subtle way. And the most ruthless thing about envy is this. Envy forces us to play a game that none of us will ever win. This game is a game you will never win. You will always be a loser. And this game is the comparison game, where you are never the victor, but always the loser. So what is envy? Well, envy is when we take a look at someone's life and we desire it, or one aspect of their life. Envy is when we compare our lives to another person and we realize that we come up short of that other person. And the typical response when we envy is we sigh. We sigh because we come up so short. And typically, envy rears its ugly head when we look at our own single status and we see someone else getting hitched dating and married. We take a look at our unemployment and we see someone else getting great internships or being promoted and climbing up the ladder. We take a look at our own situation and we compare ourselves to them. And seeing that we fall short, it, it gives birth to this thing called covetousness uh, and uh, envy. And it slowly eats uh, away at our hearts. And it very rarely ever travels as the word envy. No one ever says, I'm envious or I'm covetous. Typically, Envy comes in with a masquerade or a disguise under a pseudonym like, how did they get that? Or why don't I ever get those opportunities? And at the root of envy, what we are always asking is this, what about me? Which means that envy is completely self-centered and self-focused. If you turn to page one of your bulletin, I like the way that Melissa Kruger puts it in her book, The Eve of Envy. And Kruger says, we usually covet in the areas where we compare ourselves to, the, to others the most. We compare colleges, boyfriends, weddings, children, parents, homes, jobs, trials, gifts, ministries, grandchildren, health, and numerous other items. Usually, at the heart of this comparison trap is the mistaken belief that another person is getting it all while we are getting second best. 
And the people that we usually compare ourselves to are people that are in our inner circle. You know, I don't envy LeBron James. I wish I had his first step. I wish I had his vertical. I wish I was six foot nine. But I don't envy LeBron James. Who do I envy? I envy the people that are in my social network, in my inner ring. And it forces us to play a game with the people that we know, and we will never come out as victors. Um, if you take a look at the next quote, uh, Joseph Epstein is an essayist, and he has a very thin book that's very readable called Envy. And Epstein says this, of the seven deadly sins, only, evil, only envy is no fun at all. Sloth may not seem much fun, nor anger either, but giving way to deep laziness has its pleasures, and the expression of anger entails a release that is not without its small delights. Envy, however, is the one that people are least likely to want to own up to, for to do so is to admit that one is probably ungenerous, mean, and small-hearted. Envy is a game that when we play it, it is no fun at all, and yet all of us want to have fun. So how do envious people typically have fun in their life when the game of envy is not fun? Well, there's a German word that uh, Epstein talks about in his book called schadenfreude. And we experience schadenfreude all the time because schadenfreude is happiness at another person's misery. It is pleasure at another person's pain. And we experience this every time we go to the grocery market and we're standing in the line and we see a magazine and we see Oprah, who's a billionaire, but we think to ourselves, ha, she can't lose weight though, schadenfreude. Or we see J-Lo on a magazine and how beautiful she is, but you know what? She can't hold down a relationship. Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is pleasure at another person's pain. It is happiness at another person's misery. You know who, who epitomizes Schadenfreude? And I'll say this because he's not here. Pastor Gene. <laughs> um, you know, typically when we make bets with other people, we bet for positive things. So I have a friendly gentleman's wager with someone in our church about the NBA season. I think that this particular team's going to win this many games. He thinks they're going to win this many games. And the winner gets dinner. Uh, if I win, I get dinner. If he wins, he gets dinner. So we play for positive things. This one right here, <laughs> Pastor Gene, he only likes to play for negative things. So he'll say things like, if I win, you have to eat a spoonful of cinnamon. <laughs> or uh, if I win, you have to go to a heavily trafficked public restroom without any toilet liner, and you have to sit bare bones on that seat. No covering and no hovering. And so he takes delight. He takes tremendous pleasure in other people's pain, happiness at another person's misery. So that's what schadenfreude is. But with all kidding aside, you know what I mean. Uh, we, you know when you experience envy when you see another person succeeding and a small part of you dies. That is when you know that envy has poisoned uh, the deepest recess, recesses of your heart. And so if you take a look at the third quote from Scott Sauls uh, in his book, From Weakness to Strength, let me read this for us. Saul says, when envy is at work, we are comforted when we hear that somebody else is struggling or has failed. Conversely, we feel disturbed when we hear that somebody else is enjoying success or has received an award, a raise, the smallest bit of recognition, or some other positive reward. Envy is the opposite of love because it does not rejoice with those who rejoice or mourn with those who mourn. Instead, envy, in its sick and sinister way, rejoices when others mourn and mourns when others rejoice. And so here is the question. Knowing what we know now about envy, why do we envy? 
Why do we covet? What lies underneath our envy? Well, if you take a look at the things that we envy the most, whether it's career, marriage, whatever it might be, a body type, a platform, if you take a look at the things that we envy the most and you follow the arrow, you will see what you are truly living for. Whatever your heart attaches itself to, you will see how you primarily construct a sense of meaning with your life, how you construct your sense of purpose with your life, and even your sense of identity. Now, here's the problem with that. Whenever our hearts cling to a particular object and we actually get it, and it leaves us still wanting or unsatisfied, we're crushed. Because what are we going to do now? Plato once said that our hearts are like leaky jars. So no matter how much you fill up this leaky jar, a promising career, an attractive boyfriend or girlfriend, the perfect body type, platform, whatever it might be, our hearts are still like leaky jars. And so we, we are still found wanting and we still, very, we still feel very unsatisfied and discontent. Uh, in the early 1900s, uh, John Rockefeller was considered the world's wealthiest man and America's first billionaire. And in the early 1900s, John Rockefeller was asked the question, how much money is enough? And you know the response. His response was, just a little bit more. If that doesn't perfectly describe how leaky our hearts are, uh, I don't know what will. And typically, the way that we deal with our discontent is two ways, as C.S. Lewis would say. We deal, with, we deal with it as a younger person kind of way, and we deal with it as an older kind of person way. When a younger person is discontent, they are still very, very driven, and they think to themselves, well, if I just get that thing, or if I just find the right person, then I know I'm going to be content. And so whenever young people face discontentment, they get more and more driven. Older people are very different because older people have experienced that. And because marriage was elusive, the right career was elusive, and they never got what they wanted, as a result of that, older people tend not to be as driven so much as they tend to be a little bit more jaded, calloused, numb, resentful, and they think to themselves, <laughs> you know, I used to think like that when I was younger. But now that I'm older and wiser, I know how the real world is. And so that's the older sort of uh, mentality as they deal with discontentment. Or if they have acquired that thing and they still found it very dissatisfying, they're sort of in a place where they live a hedonistic lifestyle or they don't really know what to do with themselves. Lewis, however, says that there is an alternative way of dealing with our discontentment. And it's not the younger person kind of way or the older person kind of way, but it's a third way. And what Lewis would say is this, if nothing in this world can satisfy our leaky hearts, maybe the only thing that can really satisfy our hearts is actually not in this world, but outside of this world. Perhaps the only thing that can really satisfy our unsatisfied hearts is something that is far more transcendent. If I can read for you the last quote from his book, Mere Christianity, this is what Lewis says. Lewis says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud, probably 
Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And so what Lewis is saying is that that transcendent thing, that thing that is otherworldly, that can only quench our hearts, is none other than God himself. Now, in Buddhism, the way that you deal with discontentment is by detaching yourself from things or not desiring things. Now, when you do that, however, the problem with that is that it can leave you a very cold person because the only way of really loving other people is when you actually attach yourself to them. But when you're constantly, intensely detaching yourself from other people and not desiring anything, that can make you a very shriveled and cold person. On the other hand, the way that our secular world would say of dealing with our discontentment is to be driven. If you just find the right thing to cling to, find your niche, then, you, then you'll really be happy. But what the Bible would suggest is, again, a third way of living. And what the Bible would say is this, it's not so much that our desires are wrong, so much as our desires are misplaced and that they're in the wrong thing. It's not that we desire too much, but that we desire too little. So the problem isn't that we desire too much the right career or we desire too much to get married, so much as we desire God too little. And I'll give you an image of what this looks like. My oldest daughter, Logan, now is two and a half years old, and she has maturated like crazy over the past few months, but you know what? She's still two and a half years old. And so uh, seemingly every day, she will see food on the floor and she will eat it. And I say, Logan, why are you eating food off the floor when there is a feast for you at the dining room table? And that is precisely what we look like when we look to other things to satisfy us. We're eating food off the floor when there's a feast waiting for us at the table and that feast is none other than God himself. You know, in the gospel accounts, there's a story of Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman by the well. And he says, you know, if you drink of this water, you're going to be thirsty again. And he says to her, but I have living water that if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. And she says, what is this water? And he basically says, I am that living water that if you drink of me, you will never thirst, that if you eat of me, you will never hunger again. Now, in what ways does God satisfy us that nothing else in this world can? Because that's the question. How can God be more satisfying than sex? Or how can God be more satisfying than wanting to be desired by other people, wanting to be liked, or having the perfect career, marriage, and kids? In what ways does God really satisfy our leaky hearts? Well, I'll put it this way. My grandmother is turning 96 years old soon. And my grandmother has now buried people that are older than her, and my grandmother has also buried people that are younger than her. She has been a widow now for over 40 years when she laid down her husband. And just recently, my grandmother has laid down one of her son-in-laws who is 20 years her younger. Now, if my grandmother's primary sense of identity is in her family, and yet everyone in our family keeps dying, that is a very precarious way of building your sense of meaning, understanding, uh, identity, and hope with your life. And so what that means is that we have to build our sense of meaning, purpose with life with a foundation that is far more secure, steady, and eternal. Now, what can that thing be? And I would say, and what Lewis would say, and what the Bible would say, is that the only thing we can really rest our lives upon is an unshakable foundation that is none other than God himself. Because God is the only one that you can never lose. 
you will lose your family members. You may lose your career. You will lose your body type. You may lose your platform. But there is one thing that you will never, ever lose. And you know what else about God? God will never disappoint you. Your careers may disappoint you. Your marriages may disappoint you. That, that perfect marriage that you were idolizing your entire life, everything in this life you will lose and it will disappoint you. But there is one who will never, ever disappoint you. And you know, there's another thing that makes so God, uh, God so great to build our lives and our foundation upon. And it's this, that even though we don't covet God the way that we ought to, he still covets after us. Even though we don't love God the way that we ought to, he still loves you and me. In fact, he has a jealous love, according to the book of Exodus, for us because he doesn't want us to have roaming eyes for anyone else, any other attachments other than him because he wants us to be exclusive. Now, typically, the way that I would close a sermon, if you've heard enough of these, is that I close it with a story because I believe that stories are the best tool to capture our imaginations and to re-enchant our disenchanted hearts. And so I was thinking about a story. What, what kind of story could capture our hearts about a jealous type of love that is righteous? And so I couldn't think of one, so I asked my wife. I said, Hannah, um, do, you, do you know of any movies like this? And I was like, what about The Notebook? Like, isn't The Notebook about, like, intense love and stuff like that? And she's like, well, he, he kind of cheats on her, and then she kind of cheats on him, and it's, like, really messy, so that's not really a righteous, jealous type of love. And so I said, what about that, um, that movie you were watching on Netflix this past week, all, To All the Boys I've Ever Loved? Is that, like, a righteous, jealous type of love? And she's like, no, not, not really. It's more like a teeny bopper rom-com that's really, really good. And so I was like, so is her story that really captures a ferocious, jealous type of love? And I couldn't think of one. And so I thought, maybe Scripture has one, and sure enough, it does. And it is a story of Hosea and Gomer. Now, if you can't tell by their names, Hosea is the husband, and Gomer is the wife. And in Gomer's former life, she was a prostitute. But Hosea marries her anyway, and he loves her, and he is faithful to her. However, Gomer relapses back into her old ways and she becomes a prostitute again. One day, Hosea comes home from work, and Gomer is not home. And now he's on this sort of Liam Neeson search to go and find her. He's flipping over the city to find his loved one. And sure enough, he finds her where he had anticipated, and that is in the brothels. However, she is now owned as a possession by her pimps. And so the only thing that Hosea can do is to purchase her back because she belongs to him, he belongs to her, she belongs to nobody else but him, out of his jealous love for her. And so he purchases her back with a ransom, and he redeems her, and he's faithful to her even though she's not faithful to him. What is the story of Hosea and Gomer really about? Well, God is like Hosea, and we are like Gomer. God is faithful to us even though we are unfaithful to him. And even though we literally ditch him at times and run away from him, he pursues us. And when you realize that God covets us with a jealous type of love, so much so that his ransom for our life back to redeem us back was not with a bag full of money or cash, but with the price of his only son, when you realize that he gave that up for us because he covets after us, then why do we go on and covet other things that are smaller? It's like eating food off the floor. 
When you realize that God ferociously, jealously loves you so much so that He will not let you have, He will not give you over to your career. He will not give you over to whatever things that you want that are lesser versions of Him because He knows that He is the only one that can really, really satisfy your hearts. When you realize how coveted you are, then you slowly begin to drop everything that you attach yourselves to and you begin clinging to Him more and more. Now, I know that there are some of you that have grown up in the church and have been a Christian for a very long time, and you might be thinking, well, that sounds good, but listen, I've been a Christian forever. I grew up in the church, and I still covet. I still, very, I still feel very envious. I don't feel like He's a living water overflowing my heart, so why do I still feel this way? I really do believe in God. And if that's the way that you feel, I want you to know that I understand precisely how you feel. A few years ago, uh, I experienced a tremendous amount of discontentment and envy. Uh, I got married relatively late, uh, later in life, and I saw all of my friends sort of graduating onto the next stage, and I felt like I was always being left behind in life. I was no longer invited to the same functions that all my other friends were being invited to. Didn't know what I was doing with my life. I felt like I, I, my life was a waste, and I felt like this for three or four years. And because it was such a, 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 a long duration of discontentment, at a certain point, I said to myself, I can't live this way anymore. It's killing me. It's poisoning my heart. I can't, I can't live like this anymore. And so I, I literally had to stare at my own heart and say, is God enough, is God enough for you or not? And I said, of course you are. Of course you are. And so I slowly began sort of not looking at myself all the time and saying, what about me? And slowly started looking up more about, more at him. You know, one author says that so oftentimes we are like a bird landing at a bird feeder. And we peck around at the feed for a little bit and then we fly off to the next thing. That was me when it came to God. Peck around a little bit and then fly off to the next thing. But at a certain point, when you really, really, really see what God is like, you can't just peck around for a little while and then fly off to the next thing. At a certain point, when you see how awesome God is, you just stay put because He is more than enough for you. And it was when I got to that point that a few months later, I met Hannah. And we dated and eventually we got married, to make a long story short. And I don't find that as coincidence. Now, some of you are thinking, well, is that the secret formula? Do I just have to say, well, I'm satisfied and I'm going to get married? No, that is not the way that it works. But you get my point. Uh, I wasn't ready. And God knew I wasn't ready as well. And it wasn't until I had to force myself and say, listen, is he enough or not, that I slowly got healthier and healthier and was actually able to lead a, a relationship. The more of heaven there is in your heart, the less of earth you will covet. That's Charles Spurgeon. Now, most, more often than not, the theology that we are driven by is that the grass is greener on the other side. But in reality, if you were to live their life, you would see that the grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is more like a yellowish brown. But there is one side where the grass is greener. And it is where the Lord is our shepherd. And because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
someone else's life. I shall not want someone else's career. I shall not want someone else's marriage because he is more than enough for me. And when he is more than enough for you, that is when you can not just survive in life, but you can really thrive and live the good life that God wants us to live. And let me close with the wisest person's words of all, and that is Jesus himself, when he says, be careful against all kinds of covetousness, for one's life is not comprised of the abundance of their possessions, but one's life is comprised of the greatest possession of all, our treasure and our Lord himself. Let's pray together.